Calling all ninjas. Calling all ninjas. It's time for Lime Ninja Radio. Today on Lime Ninja Radio. So many things are going up dramatically. You know, like the um, uh, opioid epidemic, which I think is due to too much pain. And people have a lot of pain in their joints because the joints are loaded with collagen that has tons of glycine in it. And the glycine is getting substituted by glyphosate, which is causing the collagen to not form its proper crystalline form, therefore not work correctly to buffer the joint. And now you get all this pain, you know, and then they give you pain meds and then you get hooked on them. This podcast is sponsored by the Lime Ninja Symptom Tracker. I'm so excited to tell you about our new Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker. One of the things I hear over and over again, whether it's talking to a patient in my office or consulting over the phone with a client, is just how difficult it is to keep track of progress on their Lyme journey. Recording symptoms daily or even weekly gives them too many data points. There are so many ups and downs, twists and turns that at some point they get lost and confused. The Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker takes all the guesswork out of tracking symptoms with a simple monthly questionnaire. Once a month is the perfect interval to see if that new supplement or protocol is working. Right now, when you take the Symptom Tracker questionnaire, we give you a simple composite score for the month. But we have big plans and the data you enter will not be lost as we roll out new features. Best of all, it's free. Just head on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com slash tracker and sign up. That's LimeNinjaRadio.com slash tracker. You'll be glad you did. Every journey through Lyme disease is different and a cookie cutter approach just won't work. You need ninja skills. I'm your host and acupuncturist McKay Rippey and this is episode number 148 with MIT researcher Stephanie Seneff. Also, welcome our show producer and the brains behind Lime Ninja Radio, Aurora. Every Friday, Aurora sends out ninja nuggets to our email subscribers. Aurora, what's your favorite nugget coming up this week? Well, Contagion Alive has posted a segment on Lyme disease, debating theories for long-term manifestations for Lyme disease, a.k.a. chronic Lyme to you and me, and just watching these doctors contend over this subject was highly entertaining for me. I think you'll get a kick out of it. Cool. So if you want to know more about that nugget and get the other four Ninja Nuggets, head on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com and sign up. Okay, Aurora, tell us a little bit more about today's guest, Dr. Stephanie Seneff. Dr. Seneff's research has concentrated on the intersection of biology and computation. She has written over a dozen papers on topics such as modern-day diseases and the impact of nutritional deficiencies and environmental toxins on human health. Thanks, Aurora. And here's our interview with Stephanie Seneff. Dr. Seneff, it's McKay Rippey from Lime Ninja Radio. All right. Good morning or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) It is morning. I got the notice of your new paper and immediately had to read it because A, it's from you. And then B, after looking through the abstract, I've been very interested in genetic-based nutrition. Bob Miller's work, he's a naturopath in the middle of Pennsylvania. And the overlap between what we're finding with uh, genetic disturbances contributing to Lyme disease and what you're talking about with glyphosate disturbing almost identical pathways was just overwhelming. And I was so excited that you agreed to, to speak with us today. So will you encapsulate this latest paper? Because you're really talking about the worst of the worst uh defects, the neural tube defects. Yeah, exactly. I'll give you the title, Glyphosate and Anencephaly, Death by a Thousand Cuts. And this is really what we felt as we started to investigate this topic because it's just absolutely amazing how many ways glyphosate is going to disrupt development and particularly development of the brain. And, of course, anencephaly is a a horrific uh, situation where the infant is the brain fails to develop. The cerebral cortex uh, doesn't develop. The child is born with um, 
a missing cerebral cortex, and usually they die shortly after birth or within the first few weeks. Um, so it's a tragedy. Um, and it's an extreme version, I think, of, of microcephaly. You know, and microcephaly, of course, I think is also caused by glyphosate, and by deduction, if nothing else, because much of what goes on with the brain development uh, involves things that glyphosate messes up. I mean, glyphosate messes up so many things that it's almost impossible to imagine. And it does this slowly and insidiously. So depending upon your exposure levels, you know, you're going to get different degrees of pathology. Um, but anyway, so, you know, it, I don't even know where to begin with the um, with the anencephaly. The, uh, the obvious first thing with glyphosate would be the... Um, uh, retinoic acid, and, and certainly studies have shown, studies on chicks, on, on tadpoles, on uh, zebrafish, they've all shown uh, that glyphosate disrupts brain development. You get, you know, you get uh, various kinds of um, catastrophes in the development of the brain, including, of course, microcephaly, anencephaly, and all of that. Um, and so these studies have shown that ret- uh, retinoic acid is a key part of that problem. And, and the issue is actually too much. That's uh, vitamin A, by the way, and the issue is too much vitamin A. Uh, particularly the way development works is that vitamin A um, is expressed and it initiates a first stage in, in the developmental process, which is mostly to do with pro- proliferation, cells multiplying. And then the vi- vitamin A has to be cleared. And it's in the as the as the concentration of vitamin A goes down, then the cells start to mature into neurons. And so, if the vitamin A doesn't get cleared, that maturation process doesn't happen, and the and the neurons don't form. Um, and the problem with vitamin A and glyphosate, I think, has to do with the breaking down of vitamin A, because glyphosate has been shown in multiple studies to disrupt, to suppress the activity of enzymes called cytochrome P450 enzymes. Type enzymes for short, and they um, vitamin A. The metabolism of vitamin A depends upon cytochrome P450 enzymes, which are expressed early in the embryonic development, and certainly in that at that stage where the neural tube. So the neural tube has to close, and then the, from the, from there you go forward with the brain development. And often it's a, a case of the neural tube not closing properly, that then makes it impossible for the brain to develop. And add on top of that the rampant vitamin D deficiencies that we all are so aware of, because the ratio between the A and the D are very important to also prevent the toxicity of the A, correct? That's right. And and, and so you have excess A and you have a deficiency in D, and, and D, of course, is also very important for development. And again, there's, there's the five enzymes are playing a major role in that as well, because Cyp enzymes, vitamin D is very interesting because it's produced in the skin in response to sunlight and then it's activated in the first step in the liver using cyp enzymes and then the, the 25 OHD goes to the kidney and it gets an additional hydroxyl, 1,25 OHD in the, in the kidney and then it's finally active and ready to, uh, to excite receptors on various cells and cause things to happen. And so... Uh, Cyp enzyme suppression by glyphosate is going to prevent, even if you have vitamin D that's formed in the skin, or if you get it in your food, um, it doesn't get activated, so it's useless. Um, and uh, and that, I mean, that leads into, into all kinds of problems. But one that's very interesting to me is that in the kidney, without sufficient vitamin D, the kidney starts flushing sulfate, which is something that I was just really blown away when really? I heard that. It throws away sulfate in the urine. It's so fascinating. Uh, studies, two different studies on rats have shown that um, rats intentionally given vitamin D deficiency situation and rats that had impaired vitamin D receptor activity in the kidneys. Those two different kinds of rats both uh, resulted in severe deficiency in chondroitin sulfate uh, in the bones. I mean, they looked in the bones and they found sufficient defi- uh, enormous deficiency in chondroitin sulfate. And chondroitin sulfate is super, super important in brain development as well. You know, it, it's involved with the neuron, um, out, out, neur, neur, neurite outgrowth and neuron maturation. So there's a, that's another way. I mean, that's a direct way in which vitamin D deficiency is going to be a direct hit on preventing brain development because of the uh, insufficient chondroitin sulfate due to the kidney flushing sulfate, which is because the kidney doesn't have activated vitamin D. And 
I, I just want to throw in a little comment for people listening. The vitamin D tests that are done are the storage form, the 25-hydroxyl vitamin D, and that's not the active form. That has not been activated yet by the kidneys. So you can have a normal, quote-unquote normal, but if it's not getting activated like you say, then that's just a much more expensive test. And I, I think I've only run across one or two patients that, that have had the active form tested. Uh, so the normal yeah, vitamin D true. test is is not helpful in the situation at all. Right, you don't know whether the kidney's being, and, and of course, glyphosate does show up in the kidney, and it's been killing the kidneys of um, agricultural workers in in Middle America. You probably know about the epidemic in kidney failure among young agricultural workers among the sugar cane. I Do you know about this? Don't. I'm not yeah, up on that. So why don't you fill us in? I'm working on a paper on that right now. It's very <laughs> exciting, and it's just it's just so so clear that glyphosate is the key reason for this failure and. Uh, others have thought so, too. I mean, papers have been written proposing that glyphosate is the problem. People hesitate to say that because they think glyphosate is safe. This is what really annoys me. Many times they'll ignore glyphosate as part of the story, even though it's screaming at them, you know. Mm-hmm. But this kidney failure is, is so clear. These uh, sugar cane, The sugar cane is sprayed with glyphosate shortly before the harvest, and then it's burned the day before the harvest. You've got glyphosate burned, which, you know, you can't imagine what kind of toxicity that's going to yield in terms of glyphosate being released into the air. And then these guys go in there and they have a very, it's a heavy labor type of job, yeah. chopping down the sugar cane yeah. the next day after it's burned. So they're, they're, they're breathing this air that's incredibly toxic and um, chopping down the sugar cane, working really hard in the, in the summer heat. And um, they get dehydrated. And so they certainly there's lots of papers talk about dehydration as a key part of that um, pathology. The kidneys get killed uh, due to the stress of dehydration. But what's really interesting to me is that uh, I can see how glyphosate would cause dehydration because it would disrupt channels. There's aquaporin, which is a crucial channel for, por- for getting w- water to be... You want to uh, concentrate the urine and pull the water back into the body. So if you're sort of... Um, losing a lot of water through urine, you're going to get dehydrated a lot quicker. And aquaporin has crucial dependencies on glycine residues Mm. that um, I suspect. So I have, Anthony and I have this theory that glyphosate is substituting for glycine during protein synthesis, which you've heard about this theory, I hope. Yes. Have you? Yeah, because I think that's crucial. I think that really flushes out the pieces of the puzzle to understand why glyphosate is correlated with so many different diseases. You know, people say, how can one thing cause so many diseases? This is how, by substituting for glycine during protein synthesis. Um, it's it's quite a, a remarkable puzzle to, to solve, to just go into the research literature, rummaging around looking for, for proteins that have essential glycines because, you know, glycine is one of the coding amino acids, and it's the smallest one, actually. It has no side chains. And uh, it, it is used by many proteins in specific spots for essential tasks, in part because it's so tiny, it, especially in places where you need flexibility, like a channel to open and close a channel, that sort of thing, and which aquaporin certainly needs. And so um, if aquaporin gets uh, glycine swapped out for something else, it gets killed. It can't work anymore. And that means your, your urine doesn't get concentrated and you, you basically waste a lot of water. And the same thing will happen with your sweat. So you won't be able to pull the water back in <laughs> to the body from the skin. So you sweat a lot. And then you're just losing water even faster than you would normally in the summer heat. So, you know, it just makes that dehydration that much worse you know, uh, once you start messing up the aquaporin. Right. And in addition to the water, I just heard an interesting factoid on the kidneys and <clears throat> recycling of salt that uh, during a day, just kind of normal activity, the kidneys are recycling three and a half cups of salt. And it's the most wow, energy intensive uh, of the of the functions of the of the kidney, and this is a yeah. a new wow. book. I forget the researcher uh, who just come out on a book on salt, and that was one of the things in his research that he uncovered. And then, so back to the back to the glycine too, which is critical. And one thing, glycine is used in the formation of glutathione, and that's one thing most of the Lyme people are very yes. familiar with, because many of them either taking glutathione or have had IV glutathione. But without the glycine, the glutathione is not going to be properly made, so it's not going to be as well, effective. Well, this is what I think, and this is actually really exciting, because I mean, we have a lot of talk about glutathione deficiency, certainly it's associated with autism, which is something I've studied a lot. And um, 
and it has three amino acids. Glutathione is a tripeptide, three amino acids, and one of them is glycine. And so if that glycine gets substituted by glyphosate, then that glutathione is just not going to work at all the way it's supposed to. And my suspicion is that that explains why I, an enzyme called gamma-glutamyl transpeptidase <laughs> has been going up in our pot. In, in the, its level in the blood has been rising over time in our population huh. over the past two decades. It's been steadily going up. This enzyme breaks apart glutathione into its component amino acids. Oh, no and, kidding. And that's because it's busted. So what I think is happening is that the, the, the cell is able to recognize that this glutathione is broken, and it just it, it expresses this enzyme that will break it apart, and we have to make it again because we didn't do it right. And recycle it, so, yeah. Yeah. yeah, this is how proteins are. I mean, protein synthesis is so fascinating because that's when we first started looking into this idea of glyphosate substituting for glycine. You know, we started researching protein synthesis, and it turns out that it's a sloppy process, hmm. um, unlike DNA synthesis. And when you copy DNA, there's a lot of checkpoints where they can they can notice it that's screwed up and sort of back up and do it again, you know, as you're making it. Whereas the proteins are just basically spilled right out, you know, sort of in a hurry, like you're just kind of rushing through the job to get it done, and you make mistakes. So lots of mistakes are made during protein synthesis, and many of them don't matter. So it's sort of like you wait until the protein folds, and if it folds correctly and it seems to be working, there's, there's facilities to check it out after it's produced, after the whole protein is produced. And then if it looks like it's broken because it's not folding correctly, there's a whole bunch of processes that can mark it for deletion and then go ahead and break it down, you know? Well, this is and so the, what happens yeah. with glyphosate exposure, there's studies... Um, there was a study on the on the root zone of plants, the microbes in the what's called the rhizosphere, which is the root zone of plants, and they they looked at the proteins that were overexpressed when the when this root zone was exposed to glyphosate, and one of the things they found was that proteins that synthesize proteins and proteins that break down proteins. So these are proteins whose job is to manufacture proteins or break them down. Both of them were overexpressed in the context of glyphosate, which basically says proteins are being made and de- disassembled because they're broken. You know, it's, it's sort of indirect evidence that glyphosate is getting into the protein and screwing it up. Are you familiar with mTOR? Yes, yes. mTOR is interesting, isn't it? And I, I, I you'll have to probably, I know that, um, uh, let's see, is it nitric oxide? Uh Stimulates mTOR. You know, I don't know on the front end what's stim- well. It, it in, in the broad spectrum, what stimulates it is, is essentially protein intake. Uh, so it's part of ah. part of the the construction phase of, of the protein. So when the body has enough, so when insulin is high, mTOR is high, and it's it's roughly analogous, and it probably has a lot more functions than that, but roughly analogous to insulin levels going up when we eat sugar. So the mTOR levels go up when we eat protein to create, it's the building phase that you're talking about. And yes, it's sloppy. So then what's supposed to happen is this mTOR gets downregulated. So the body can then exactly what you're talking about, clean up all these proteins that weren't folded correctly. And what's happening in a lot of people is the mTOR because either they're eating very frequently or high protein diets or whatever, or other stress factors that the mTOR never comes back down. So the autography stage never gets fully implemented. Right. right. Yes. You're reminding me. And I remember I was deep into mTOR at one point, but I haven't refreshed my memory recently, but absolutely. I was quite fascinated by that. And one thing that's going on with mTOR being overexpressed is that the machinery that actually breaks down debris is busted. Yes. And this is one thing that I'm discovering about glyphosate, especially in my study of the kidney failure problem. Really, really interesting because it turns out chloride channels are, uh, all of the chloride channels have essential glycines. And I found a lovely paper that said if you swap out that glycine, that particular glycine at that place where the chloride comes in, so the chloride channel is going to pump chloride across a, a membrane. And when when the chloride tries to go in, it's negatively charged, right? So if you replace that glycine with a negatively charged amino acid, then it busts the molecule. The chloride can't get in because the negative, it's like magnets turned the wrong way that, that, you know, the two negative charges push each other apart. Uh. The chloride can't get in. And glyphosate is a negatively charged amino acid. So if glyphosate swaps in for the glycine at, in the chloride channel at that spot, it's going to wreck it. And I think this has a lot to do, I mean, this explains a lot of the kidney failure issues that we're seeing in these guys in the, Central America, but it also explains 
an impaired ability to acidify the endosome. So, you know, when you, when you, when you take garbage in, like if you're trying to clear oxidized or glycated, um, cholesterol, for example, you know, the LDL particles, you try to take the LDL particle in, uh, your, your cell takes it in and pinches off a piece of the membrane and makes this little organelle called an endosome. It's really fascinating. It kind of grabs stuff outside and brings it into this cavity and then breaks it off like a little cave that it forms in the membrane and then it breaks it off inside the cell so it becomes a little round uh, lipid particle called an endosome with stuff inside it that needs to be broken down. And then that endosome goes through a procedure where it uh, pumps in hydrogen, it pumps in protons to make itself very acid, acidic to, and turns into something called a lysosome when it gets sufficiently acidic. But it has to pump chloride as well in order to do that. It uses chloride as kind of a buffering for the... For the um, for the proton. So when that chloride channel is busted by glyphosate, the endosome cannot convert itself into a lysosome, and therefore you can't digest the debris. And, and worse than that, there are many uh, membrane receptors um, that come in with the endosome. There's, there's like, for example, vitamin D binding protein, very, very important. Vitamin D binding protein binds to vitamin D outside the cell, and then two of them partner up and come inside in this endosome. And then when the endosome matures into a lysosome, the acidic environment actually disengages the binding protein from the vitamin D, breaks them apart. And now the binding protein can go back to the membrane and pick up another vitamin D molecule. And the vitamin D can then be activated by the cytochrome P450 enzyme. So both the breaking apart of the binding protein from, from vitamin D and the um, activation of vitamin D are busted by glyphosate. So vitamin D doesn't have a chance if there's glyphosate around that's interesting. One of the supplements that I've been using recently is uh, it's various minerals, and basically you mix it with water, and it loosens the hydrogen bonds with the oxygen. So it makes a little bit of hydrogen, which is positively charged, available. Um, I've been hearing about hydrogen therapy. And yep. That's one thing I know Dr. McCullough is very excited about. And I'm fascinated by that because there's actually microbes in the gut that produce hydrogen. Yes. And hydrogen is now, they're recognizing it's a signaling gas. I always thought of the hydrogen as sort of inert and uninteresting, and so I haven't really studied it very much. You know, And I think that may be true of most chemists, that they haven't really looked at hydrogen hard enough to understand what it actually does um, in the body. But I suspect that hydrogen is going to turn out to be a very important signaling molecule. There's many gases, you know, that are signaling molecules. Nitric oxide was the big one they found first, I think, and then now they're recognizing hydrogen, hydrogen. So if you're, uh, hydrogen sulfide, hydrogen sulfide is another very interesting signaling molecule, which has sulfur in it. And then you have this pure hydrogen, you know, a newly discovered signaling molecule. And, um, sulfur dioxide is another one. And then of course you have carbon monoxide, that's also a signal. And carbon dioxide. Yes, right. All. So all these interesting <laughs> gases, and, and you know they're in the um, they're in the air. So you know, I was thinking because I, I've, I've come to believe that the hydrogen sulfide gas that's in the air can actually be taken in by the skin, and captured, oxidized to sulfate, and then stuck onto a cholesterol molecule and captured, you know, as a source of sulfur for the body, which is very very interesting. And I think that's done in the presence of sunlight. This is one of the reasons why I encourage people to get out in the sun because you can. Um, you can get sulfur that way without eating it, which is pretty interesting. If I'm right, and I haven't proven it, but it, it makes sense to me, and we've certainly looked deeply into this whole mechanism of sulfate synthesis in the skin. The skin produces lots of cholesterol sulfate, which is super, super important, I believe, for delivering cholesterol and sulfate, not only to the body, but also to the fetus. It's very interesting in development that uh, cholesterol sulfate piles up in high concentrations in the placental billy, uh, that's that's where the nutrients go across from, from the placenta into the fetus in the third trimester of, of pregnancy. The mother has a huge amount of cholesterol sulfate compared to how much is in the blood. It's like 20 times as much oh my goodness. Like that, um, of cholesterol sulfate in those villi, which is then delivering both the cholesterol and the sulfate to the fetus. And the fetus produces tons of DHEA sulfate. Hmm. That's one thing we learned in studying the um, anencephaly paper. DHEA sulfate is also a sulfate sterile, very much like cholesterol sulfate. You know, it's a modified form of cholesterol that produces this DHEA. 
And um, DHEA is a sulfate is what the placenta uses as a precursor to make uh, estrogen. So, and the, so it's very very interesting that in the later stage of development, like during the third trimester, the fetus is now able. It has its own adrenal glands, and it has this fetal zone in the adrenal glands. It's a major part of the adrenaline at that stage. And the fetal zone spends its life producing tons of DHEA sulfate, which it ships out to the placenta, and the placenta converts it into estrogen. And then the estrogen is super, super important for the the final stages of development, for example, of the fetal brain. So the two of them are collaborating, the fetal adrenals and the placenta, to help support the development of the fetal brain. And so when DHEA sulfate, so the anencephalic embryo, the embryo that has no brain, doesn't its fetal zone fails to develop in the adrenals and it doesn't produce DHEA sulfate. It has basically none. Hugely deficient DHEA sulfate in its blood. People have looked at this. So that therefore it doesn't have the estrogen, it can't develop its brain. You know, so it's sort of working in a feedback loop where the it starts with the pituitary not getting developed and the pituitary is going to stimulate the adrenals to make this DHEA sulfate and none of that happens. None of that happens in the in the um, anencephalic brain. And, and it's a phallic fetus. Yeah, Things I, get really messed up. Yeah, and I, I want to pause there because you bring up a, a very interesting point that basically when we hear cholesterol, we think of heart disease and bad. <laughs> very quickly thereafter, we can't, even if we know that's not the case. But cholesterol is a very, very important hormone building block for the body. And there's such an emphasis on reducing the levels of cholesterol by any means necessary that here's another stress point where we've got dietary and and uh, medical interventions bringing down our cholesterol levels. Then you have glyphosate, which is interfering with yeah. the cholesterol pathways to produce these hormones and these other uh, fat-based th- that we need. And again, it's it's... It's a, a perfect storm, to borrow a phrase that other people use a it lot. It really is. And in fact, what's happening, I think, is the sulfate deficiency mm. problem. Glyphosate is an absolute train wreck for sulfate. And I mentioned already the vitamin D problem. The sulfate gets flushed out the kidneys. So you end up with sulfate deficiency. But the process of actually moving the sulfate around, and sulfate is so interesting the way it's transported because it's attached to all these different sterols. So I mentioned DHEA sulfate, cholesterol sulfate, vitamin D sulfate. All those things are sulfated in transit. And it's, I think they're shipping sulfate around and supplying it to the various uh, parts of the body. That, that's one of their important roles, these sterols. They're shipping around sulfate. And it's something that the aromatic amino acids also do. They're, those two groups of molecules, the aromatic amino acids and their derivatives, and the Sterols, which is the cholesterol, the vitamin D, that the, the uh, hormones, testosterone, estrogen, all of them are sulfated when they're shipped out. And, and in fact, the uh, adrenals produce all these hormones and sulfate them. It's a very important step in the adrenals to add that sulfate before they ship it out. It makes it water soluble. It makes it a lot easier for it to get transported in the blood, the, the carrier molecule, but it also makes the sulfate a lot easier to transport. Both of them have a hard time moving around in the blood if they're not buddied up. So that the body has this interesting strategy of attaching sulfate to these two classes of molecules, the sterols and the uh, aromatic amino acids, which are the products of the shikimate pathway, which is the pathway that glyphosate disrupts in the plant. So glyphosate produces a deficiency in the aromatic amino acids in the plants and also in the microbes in our gut because of its disruption of that pathway. And... um, and aromatic amino acids are precursors to the neurotransmitters. So now you have problems with um, uh, adrenaline and uh, melatonin and serotonin and dopamine and thyroid hormone. All of those come from the aromatic amino acids, which are disrupted by glyphosate. So both of those classes of molecules, the sterols and the uh, aromatics, are disrupted by glyphosate. And this is a huge problem for sulfate. Plus, sulfate synthesis and sulfate transfer is disrupted as well, the enzymes that do that. And uh, sulfite, sulfite is a very toxic molecule, and the gut microbes have very efficient enzymes that will clear the sulfite very quickly, either driving it down, um, you know, reducing its oxygen and turning it into methionine, or oxidizing it and turning it into sulfate. And those enzymes are all disturbed by glyphosate. So sulfite becomes toxic. People have sulfur sensitivities, 
they can't eat sulfur-containing foods. They end up with severe sulfur deficiency. And meanwhile, the sulfide is toxic. So they're really quite stuck in a situation like that. Right. And the conversion of sulfite to sulfate requires B12. And that's one of the vitamins that glyphosate chelates from the body. You have a lovely panel table in your uh, paper that, that kind of lists some of these minerals and vitamins that are chelated. So how does the glyphosate chelate these? Well, so it's the cobalt. So glyphosate uh, grabs hold. It, it has this very strong negative charge, and it grabs hold of, of cations, plus two cations, which is a various minerals such as cobalt, manganese, um, copper, zinc, iron. Uh, all of those are, are adversely affected by glyphosate because it grabs hold of them and prevents them from being available to the, uh, for starting with the gut microbes. The gut microbes get very disrupted in part because of the lack of availability of these minerals that are so important uh, for enzyme, a catalyst for enzymes. And uh, actually it's molybdenum that's a catalyst for sulfite oxidase. Yes. And sulfite oxidase also contains, I believe it contains two heme molecules. Heme is, a, of course, in hemoglobin, that's an iron-carrying uh, molecule. And the synthesis of heme, of the pyro ring in heme, is disrupted by glyphosate as well. So um, heme synthesis is a problem. Molybdenum is a plus two cation, so it probably gets chelated by glyphosate, although they, the papers don't talk about molybdenum. They usually talk about a lot of the other ones. A, a study on cows showed severe deficiency in cobalt and manganese in the blood for cows exposed to glyphosate. Severe deficiency, way below the minimum of the range. Almost, and the cobalt was almost non-existent. Hmm. Uh, which, of course, cobalt is the catalyst for cobalamin. That's why it gets its name from that. And so, and, and cobalamin also has a pyro ring, so it, it gets dis- its synthesis gets disrupted because of the pyro ring. And furthermore, the the absorption of cobalamin across the gut is disrupted because glyphosate harms the cells in the um, in the digestive system that. Uh, that absorb minerals, those those uh, that absorb nutrients, uh, those enterocytes uh, that are connected to celiac disease, those guys get hit really hard by glyphosate. Part of the reason is because they, one of their jobs is to transport amino acids into the body. So you have the proteins coming in, you're eating protein, uh, your gut, you know, the pancreas releases trypsin and pepsin, various digestive enzymes to break the protein down. And then the amino acids are formed, and then the, these enterocytes take up those amino acids and bring them into the blood so you can supply them to the, as nutrients. And glyphosate is an amino acid, and it's been shown that it's taken up on these amino acid channels. So what happens is these enterocytes are take, you know, they're grabbing glyphosate and taking it up and getting harmed by it. So they end up putting glyphosate in all their proteins, and they get completely screwed up, and then they, they start dying, and you get leaky gut. You get leaky gut syndrome. Um, and what's amazing with the trypsin, trypsin itself has actually several highly conserved glycine residues. So trypsin gets messed up by glyphosate. And Anthony Sampson actually ordered uh, from a lab porcine trypsin, and he sent it off and tested it, and it came out with a striking amount of glyphosate in it, uh. in the porcine trypsin. What this tells us is that the glyphosate's getting into the protein by mistake in place of glycine. It's wrecking the protein, so the protein doesn't work. And that means the proteins that you're eating are not getting broken down. Things like gliadin and gluten. So you have gluten intolerance because trypsin doesn't break down the wheat protein. And then you have the leaky gut because trypsin actually, trypsin deficiency leads to leaky gut uh, through a complicated mechanism that involves a trit- uh, critical pathways that's going to cause the, the gut to leak because of the lack of trypsin. And furthermore, the proteins don't get broken down. So you get these wayward proteins going into the general circulation and causing autoimmune disease. Really nasty. We're all doomed. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I really think so, actually. I really fear for the future. I see so many sick children these days. It's just amazing. And so many kids can't eat anything. You know, they're like allergic to peanuts or allergic to wheat or allergic to milk. I mean, it's amazing the number of food allergies that the kids have today. And I think it's directly due to the glyphosate. You know, I have a a patient slash friend who lives not too far, but in a, a farming community and grew up uh, around farms up here in central New York. And her digestion 
habit she's able to turn around recently went on this downward trajectory where basically she got to the point where she couldn't eat anything uh without causing severe histamine you know so she was looking into the mast cell activation all this other kind of stuff but basically it was almost almost anything she would put into her body the the ability to eat foods was getting the the list was smaller and smaller and she was just at at her wits end and she's one of these incredibly disciplined persons so she was working really really hard and eventually what she did was started fasting just to give the whole system a break and a chance to repair. And that seems to have given her body enough time to heal where she seems to be turning the corner a little bit. But I, I can't help but wonder if, you know, that's, that's part of the equation out there. Yeah. People have to have to switch to organic. I mean, that's, we're very, very careful now when we shop, we, for groceries, we always buy organic. It's harder to do when you go out to eat, so we're eating out less and less these days. But we're still joking about the fact that we're poisoning ourselves when we go out to dinner. You know, even though we pick sort of high-end places and try to choose the carefully choose what you know the optimal thing on the menu. There are so many foods that are uh, contaminated. This is coming out more and more now. You know, it's, it's not the government. I mean, the government seems to think glyphosate is fine and they're not worried, which is really scary. But the Canadian government, actually, uh, they got harassed by a friend of mine who's an activist in Canada. He's like a, a bulldog. You know, he won't let go. And he finally got Canada to test over 8,000 samples of different foods for glyphosate. And it was shocking what they found. I mean, I, I was surprised by the levels in certain foods you wouldn't expect. For example, uh, garbanzo beans and chickpeas, hmm. you know, hummus. I mean, I like that, those Middle Eastern, um, yeah, so, you know, things that are produced from beans. Yeah. In Middle Eastern food, and they just had sky high levels of glyphosate. Even the organics, which was what was so shocking, he was. They were looking at organic and non-organic from North America, from U.S. or Canada. All of them had the organics had half as much as the non-organics, but that was still a lot compared to other countries. So they they were looking at the imports from Europe or even from Mexico, and they were much much lower levels. So it's really the United States and Canada were king of glyphosate. These two countries. Amount. It makes finding it in yeah. Oreo cookies and yeah. um, goldfish crackers and ice cream. You know, it was just a big thing on uh, Ben and Jerry's ice cream. <laughs> I think the Organic Consumer uh, Organization or something did uh, did a um, test on on twelve different flavors of Ben and Jerry's ice cream and all but Gar- uh, Cherry Garcia. Cherry Garcia was the only one that didn't test positive for glyphosate. Isn't that funny? Well, for just kids love, you know? yeah, just to put things in perspective, because I now live in a farming community, is we have a, literally across the street from us two fields, and one is conventionally farmed, and the other is organic, and all that's required by law is a fifteen-yard buffer between the two. Right, that's what I was suspecting because we were trying, we were puzzling over how did the organic get so much glyphosate in it, but you figure that if it's growing. In a sea of all surrounded by non-organic beans mm-hmm. that are being sprayed right before the harvest, which is what they do with these things. They're not GMO. You know, you have the crops that are GMO engineered to resist glyphosate, like the corn and the soy and the canola and the sugar beets. So you can understand why they would have glyphosate in them. But there's a whole bunch of crops now that are being sprayed with glyphosate right before harvest. I mentioned the sugar cane earlier, but also the wheat, yep. which I think is why we have an epidemic in gluten intolerance. Hmm. And then all these different beans and peas and stuff, all those things are sprayed right before the harvest. And particularly in Canada, where they're chasing a frost, they can uh, they can save the crop, crop from a frost Ex- by, by getting it to uh, go to seed early. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And it's, it's so much more, from the farmer's point of view, it's so much more efficient. And they're told there's nothing wrong with it. It's completely safe. So why not use it? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you really can't blame the farmer. They're being misinformed. Yeah. Now, I want to, this is for my own, well, actually, there are two things I want to bring up. But the first one is, and I can't pronounce it, it's the MT, metallothionine. 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 Yes, that's so interesting. And this was something I learned um, when I wrote the anencephaly paper was um, zinc. Uh, Zinc turns out to be really important for protecting from glyphosate. And, in fact, there was a study on, um, I forget what animal it was, but yeah, I think it was rats. And then when they gave the rats zinc before they exposed them to the glyphosate, they were much better off 
than if they didn't, you know. And, and glyphosate actually causes a, uh, a huge increase in the production of metallothionine in the liver. Metallothionine is a terrific antioxidant. It's actually much more potent than glutathione, which is the one you think of all the time. Uh, metallothionine has tons of sites where it binds to zinc. So it basically, it's a, a zinc hog, and it, it grabs huge amounts of zinc, which it needs in order to do its thing. You know, its whole antioxidant uh, benefit is due to its, uh, all those zinc atoms that it grabs. So what happens is that when you are exposed to a toxin like glyphosate, and there's a lot of other toxins that will have the same effect, the liver makes a lot of this metallothionine. It grabs all the zinc, and it'll actually cause zinc deficiency elsewhere in the body because the metallothionine is hogging all the zinc. It's really fascinating. I learned all of that just when I started doing this anencephaly paper. And what so what got my attention was that the metallothionine is very active against the hydroxyl radicals. Yes, that's right. Which is OH. Right 340-fold higher. The rate constant for reactions of hydroxyl radicals with MT is about 340-fold higher than that with glutathione. 340 times as, as effective. Isn't that amazing? It is amazing. And what we see with some of the sickest people with with Lyme disease and probably other is, and then you go back to, so the, the iron, the Fenton reaction in the body. So the, if the iron's not being yeah. properly used and we've got some of these sulfur, the cysteine not being properly utilized because of a glycine problem with uh, glutathione, then you've yes. got this extra cysteine. It's reacting with the iron and with copper and producing these hydroxyl radicals. And so and if you're deficient with zinc or the MT is not working properly, all of a sudden you know, glutathione will work some with the hydroxyl radicals. But that's why we're using the, the hydrogen water, the quote-unquote hydrogen I water. See. That's interesting. That's a really good point. And I have here right here, I'm just checking this paper, that MT has, it has a sequence of... Uh, uh, called M-S-C-C-G-G-N-C-G-C-S. There are three glycines in uh, this particular sequence that is crucial for the activity of uh, metallothionine. So again, you put some glyphosates in there, it's not going to work. And it just doesn't work at all. Isn't that fascinating? That is it's truly really amazing. It's, it's really fun. If anyone wants to play this game, they can do it. Just go <laughs> Uh, conserved glycine, you know, and find different proteins. This is what I've done, and just gather a list, and you find a protein, you say, oh, that explains di- diabetes, and oh, that explains Alzheimer's. I mean, it's just amazing. You just find the protein. Oh, of course, then that's why they have Alzheimer's. You know, it's like you explain everything that way. It's so perfect. Yeah, it's yeah, it's it's amazing. And what I, I recently went after nitric oxide, and I'm I'm amazed because that also showed up in your paper and produced yes. particularly the inducible nitric oxide, and I think I yes. yeah so much damage I think occurs when the inducible nitric oxide cycle doesn't shut back down again, and instead of turning on for a few days, it's turned on for a few weeks. I totally agree, and the reason is really because there is. Um so much of a overgrowth of these pathogens in the gut. Mm-hmm. So you need the inos actually as a defense against um, the pathogens. That's a you know that's a response to infection. You know. And there's there's some speculation. I haven't nailed this down, but there's some speculation. So there's the 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 basal level of nitric oxide that's produced by the enos and the uh, the neuronal nos, the nos, and the, now they know there's a mitochondrial nos. There are probably even other forms out there. So there's a basal right. level. But after the inos is overexpressed, there's some speculation that the basal levels then are reduced in, in response to this overexpression of inos. So when you get back to your health, now the normal function of this nitric oxide, which is this signaling gas, amongst other things, is underexpressed, and that gets into a lot of the autography things and the the growing, uh, the repairing of of tissue. And those get disturbed. Now, this all makes sense actually with respect to the sulfate because I don't know if you're familiar with my concept that the nitric oxide and sulfur dioxide are sort of um, the the you know switches off between the two of those. It it, it can. It can produce both. It can oxidize both sulfur and nitrogen. This is my theory, which I've published several papers discussing this now with colleagues. Um, Enos is a magical, magical molecule, a very complicated molecule, by the way, with lots of complicated regulatory processes going on with it. But Enos attaches to the membrane 
And when it attaches to the membrane, it doesn't make nitric oxide. But I think that's the circumstance under which it makes sulfur dioxide, which eventually becomes sulfate. So, um, and nitric oxide eventually becomes nitrate. So both of yes. those are, you're basically starting the oxidation of either nitrogen or sulfur to produce uh, eventually nitrate or sulfate. And nitrate and sulfate are opposites on this scale that um, th- there's these things called chaotropes and cosmotropes, which have to do with the Hofmeister scale. Have you heard about this? No, this is new no. biochemistry, so <laughs> I'll try to hang yeah, in there. This is, this is more biophysics. Okay, biophysics. Water. <laughs> yeah, that it's really interesting because you have all these different dimensions that you have to worry about in the blood to get the pH right, mm-hmm. you know, um, have enough buffering for the pH, and then to have the, um, the viscosity correct so that it's, it can flow without bleeding to death. So you have to basically, you know, you don't want to have it able to flow but not too thin. Right. Because then it can start to leak out. So there's tremendous balancing going on in the blood to manage, manage different aspects of it. And this business of the viscosity is really interesting because um, chaotropes and cosmotropes are opposites on this Hofmeister scale. And chaotropes basically turn the blood into water, and cosmotropes turn it into gel. Yes. Like jello. In fact, mm-hmm. that's a very good example. You can almost make water into a solid. You know, yes. You these cosmotropes in there. Yes. So interesting. And this is crucial, crucial, crucial for biology. This is why water, I think, is, is this, you know, crucial for life, because it has this very interesting property that it can either be very liquid or it can be like a gel. And uh, so the sulfate is going to make it into a gel, and the nitrate is going to make it into a liquid. Uh-huh. And all the cells lining all the blood vessels are constantly monitoring the state of the blood to decide whether they need to release nitrate or, or sulfate. And they switch back and forth based on the, what they're hearing from the signals that are coming from the gases. So the nitric oxide gas is going to signal uh, one thing, and hydrogen sulfide gas is going to signal something else, you know. And so the whole... It's so fascinating because sulfide oxidase produces sulfate, right? Mm-hmm. It produces sulfate. It's in the blood, and it will not produce sulfate if the blood is too thick. It actually gets turned off when the blood gets very thick, which is so perfect because if the blood is thick, you don't want to make sulfate. That's going to make it thicker. Hmm. So you can't make the sulfate when the blood is thick, and the blood can be thick either because you've got a lot of red blood cells, so that's like a high hematocrit, right. or you've got you know um, triglycerides in your blood, or you've got sugar in your blood because you've got diabetes, all those things are going to make the blood thick, which is going to disrupt your ability to make sulfate, which is going to, again, lead to the sulfate deficiency problem. And so, and once you don't have enough sulfate, and you gather the sulfate all along the edges of the blood vessel, you hook it there into the sugar chain. so fascinating. You're storing it there in those sugar chains. And then the nitrate, the nitric oxide actually oxidizes to nitrite, which will attack the sulfated sugars and rip them off. It'll detach them from the membrane and allow them to flow downstream and get picked up in the capillaries. So the the, the um, arteries are producing these sulfated sugars uh, outside, you know, all along the artery wall. And then the nitric oxide is chipping them off, chipping away at them, and allowing them to go downstream and get picked up by the capillaries. They, they attach in the capillary wall so that the artery is essentially making sulfated sugars for the capillary because the capillary has other jobs it needs to do it can't it can't spend its time doing that you know so it's really interesting how they kind of collaborate that way to make sure the capillaries have enough sulfate in their walls and if they don't then those capillaries are going to be busted and they'll have to just be closed off you know I mean, this is so fascinating and i'm going to tell a couple stories that will i think pique your interest uh and forgive me so I forget there's there's a form of hemoglobin that's inactive that will react with the nitric oxide and it yes. turns it turns thick and it turns brown so there's a genetic disease with it actually in Kentucky or somewhere there was people who turned blue and this was part of this genetic rare genetic uh condition but in in general just the the blood itself turns uh brown and thick so it gets very jelly but so that's in response to nitric oxide uh binding within this inactive heme form and again forgive me i forget the name of it it yes it is methemoglobin thank you so it binds with the nitric oxide now i recently went through uh essentially i had bell's palsy of my brachial 
nerve. So my right arm just went useless and I'm now getting back from it. One of the alternative treatments we did, I had my daughter do wet cupping, which is essentially a mild form of bleeding. And so what happens with the wet cupping is that around the site of the injury, the the blood that is released, that is brought out through the skin, congeals instantly into this jello form you're talking about. It's amazing. And it's dark, this is dark brown. It doesn't look like blood. It's dark brown and it's, it literally turns into a little slug or a big slug. And as you move away from the site of the injury, it just, the blood's normal. It's bright red and it just flows out and stays liquid. It doesn't congeal instantly like that. So it's fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. It is. It's all so fascinating. And I love the biology. It's so interesting, but I do. I just wish somehow we could just get rid of glyphosate. We just need to ban it. We need to get it off the planet. It's going to destroy everything. It's just so incredibly toxic. And and the fact that the government just thinks it's fine is so disturbing. It's just going to ruin us. You know, in the U.S., you know, we're we're right up there at the top. So we're going to be the first to get hit. I mean, we are already hit. You know, we have so many diseases. And it's just and everything. So many things are going up dramatically. You know, like the... um. um opioid epidemic which i think is due to too much pain and people have a lot of pain in their joints because the joints are loaded with collagen that has tons of glycine in it and the glycine is getting substituted by glyphosate which is causing the collagen to not form its proper crystalline form therefore not work correctly to buffer the joint and now you get all this pain you know and then they give you pain meds and then you get hooked on them hmm. yeah and that's a particular problem out here it's interesting. The opioid epidemic out here in the countryside is is awful. Mm, interesting. It's just awful. Well, you know, it's just so obvious to me. All these things are happening. And the anencephaly, for example, I, I mean, one of the things we wrote about in our paper was this uh, Yakima, Washington. That was very interesting. We looked into that uh, epidemic that they had in anencephaly in Yakima, Washington, and. Um, and when you uh, when you investigate, you find out that they had a big problem with weeds growing in the waterways of the Yakima River. And in the two years in which they decided to use glyphosate because it's like the safe chemical, this is what happens is people think, oh, glyphosate's safe, so we'll use that. And they used glyphosate in the waterways, um, <clears throat> which were, you know, feeding into the canals that were watering the crops, but I think was also the source of water for the town. So they were, the drinking water came from there, I believe, as well. And the two years in which they used the most glyphosate were the two years when they had the highest uh, levels of anencephaly showing up among the infants. Um, so it's just like, um, it's just so obvious to me that glyphosate is what's causing that ep- that epidemic in anencephaly. And, you know, you would think it ought to be first front page news, something like that. We just need to be aware of how dangerous this chemical is. Eat organic. Absolutely. <laughs> it makes such a difference. You know, and you had mentioned this person that you knew who had was fasting, and I, I have a friend, too, who was really sick with uh, rheumatoid. She had basically um, arthritis from um, psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis. Yeah, yeah. And just absolutely miserable. And she could tell that, you know, she was trying to eliminate certain foods and it, nothing was helping. And then she finally decided to just stop eating altogether, and I think she didn't eat for like three days. And her symptoms improved dramatically over those three days. So then she knew it was something in the food. It's, yeah. Yeah. So then she switched to organic at that point. And then after three months, she was much better. Dr. Seneff, once again, you've been incredibly generous with your time and your expertise and your knowledge. And just, just like Lyme disease, eventually the, the controls, the government will get around to regulating this and figuring out what's going on. It's, it's so frustrating to be on the front edge of things and kind of being yelling and pushing everybody and trying to get them to catch up. And, but that's, that's how it works. That's what we need to keep doing. Yes, absolutely. Oh, one. So do you know the work of Gerald Pollack at a university of Washington? And his I work. Certainly do. Okay. I do. Well, actually, okay. I, I'm in touch with him through email. Very good. I, he gave, I gave a talk in a, at a conference that he hosted. You were talking about the water and the gel. I was thinking uh, yeah, that sounds like Pollock. The one who introduced me to that whole idea tells gels and the engines of life. Yes. One of his books, and then he has the fourth phase of water. Exactly. I highly recommend both of those books. I've read both of them. They're very fascinating. He's a great guy. 
and he's really making this really difficult science accessible to the general public. It's very difficult science. Yes. The whole properties of water, biophysics, and all of that. It's so difficult, but he makes it accessible. Particularly the second book, The Fourth Phase of Water, is absolutely accessible. The cells, gels, and the engines of life is a little tougher, but uh, the second one, uh, he's he's brilliant. He's absolutely brilliant. He's wonderful, and he's got great figures in that book, too. (laughs) He's got a good cartoonist, doesn't he? He does great. I think it's his son who's doing that. I'm not sure, but I believe his son son might be responsible for a lot of those. That's great. Images that he constructed. It's a great book. So what's your next paper? What should I look out for next? Uh, well, so kidney failure okay. in Central America, and I'm also working on a couple of chapters, book chapters, one on autism, glyphosate and autism, and one on the protein substitution um, problem, the glycine substitution problem, specifically about that, which is, of course, a huge topic. But <laughs> It is. Well, we'll be in touch, I'm sure. Yes. Well, thank you so much for having me on the show. Oh, absolutely my pleasure. Take care, and we'll be in touch soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This this was a great interview, and listening to you and Stephanie talk... Dr. Senev. Dr. Senev, excuse me. She's, excuse very, me. <laughs> she's, she's very casual about that, but... She's done so much work. I really have a ton of respect for her. And in this case, I think the doctor just, yeah, you know, she's a PhD, right? Yeah. She's, she's that she, kind of doctor. Yeah. She's a thinking doctor. She earned it. <laughs> I, I, I believe she has. Yeah. Several times so, over. Dr. Seneff, uh, your conversation with Dr. Seneff actually reminded me of a conversation that I had recently with our neighbor, Mr. Brubaker, the organic dairy Mennonite farmer. That's uh, a mouthful. <laughs> and it's all true. Yeah. He is our neighbor. He's a Mennonite. <laughs> well, he's actually retired. His son has taken over the farm. Yeah. And he's still around. We yeah. love having him around. Yes. And, and he actually, he started uh, doing organic practices in the 70s. And I was chatting with him the other day, and he was saying the first years of his farming career, he did everything by the book. He did everything the Princeton Review said to do until his first son was born. And then he and his wife kind of looked at each other, and they asked themselves, you know, is this the kind of farming, the kind of life that we want to teach our son to that we want to teach to our son. And uh, that's when he made the switch over to organic farming. That's an amazing story. You know, there's enough evidence that I think we should be skeptical about glyphosate and not just spread it around like water. I think there's some use to it. It has increased crop yield tremendously, but it's been using, it's being used now in addition to just keeping the weeds down. It's using to help harvest the crop as well. So it's being sprayed on everything, whether it's a GMO crop or not. And, you know, it's just how, how much is enough? How much is too much? Right. The, the, there's a quote in the scientific, in the medical communities that the, the poison is dose specific. You can die from water toxicity if you drink too much water and and thin out your electrolytes. So everything is toxic. The question is how much? And have we put too much Roundup in our systems? That's the question, not whether is it toxic 100% or not. Some things we know 100% are toxic, like a Twinkie. (laughs) Just kidding, you Twinkie lovers out there. Don't send hate mail. It's probably a soul food. (laughs) All right. And just as a reminder, last week's episode was a repeat of episode number 73 with Dr. Seneff. We'll probably have her on again. She's just such a wealth of knowledge and her digging into the biology, the deep biology of what's going on here. I think shed light on not only what's going on with glyphosate and the replacing of glycine within the systems in the body, but then how it affects this other systems. So she reminds me so much of Bob Miller and his work with the methyl genetic Mm -hmm. research, and we've interviewed him several times. So they're absolutely on parallel interlocking tracks there. Okay. Aurora, thanks so much for your work this week. And as you longtime Lime Ninjas know, this podcast would not be complete unless we left you with 
The Lime Ninja Fact of the Day. Did you know that the sun needs special glasses to look at a ninja? Lime Ninja Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique, and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and/or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician. Before considering any new treatment.